with me in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the restorative, rebuking, correcting, teaching ministry of your word. And I pray that your preacher today would not get in the way of that. I pray that your preacher today would be under the control, the illuminating ministry of the Spirit as he communicates this word to the children of God, the people of God at Fisherville. And we pray for this for Christ's sake. Amen. I still remember my senior year of high school when the space shuttle Challenger, 73 seconds after takeoff, exploded, killing all seven members, crew members, on the shuttle. All of us, kind of like 9-11, if we were alive, remember where we were. I was driving back from New Orleans. It was a Tuesday, January the 28th, 1986. I'd been to the Super Bowl that Sunday, January 26th, and I was driving back to my home uh, in Enterprise that morning of Tuesday morning, and the radio uh, just had that emergency broadcast basically to tell us what had happened. The first question that everyone was asking was, what happened? Why did this happen? And after months of investigation, here's what the Rogers Commission, appointed by Ronald Reagan, discovered. An O-ring seal in the joint of its right solid rocket booster failed at liftoff. It wasn't designed to handle the uniquely cold weather at Cape Canaveral that morning in Florida. It was 28 degrees. Now, an O-ring is a, a very small device, if you think about it, relative to a space shuttle. In other words, it wasn't something huge like a, a puncture in the rocket booster. It wasn't a hole in the cabin that caused the disaster. It was a, a small, seemingly insignificant O-ring failure. Now, I think that that is a, a lesson for every church, a lesson for every family, a lesson for every individual Christian. It does not take a so-called flagrant sin or sins to bring great harm and destruction to our walks, to our testimonies, to our unity, to our ministries. There are O-ring sins that are very prevalent and yet very harmful. And hence the rescue nature of our present text. It is a rescue text. Paul is writing... To the children of God. We see that in verse 15. In other words, he's not writing an evangelistic text on how to become a child of God. He is writing to children of God. Those who by grace alone, through repentant faith alone, 
in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ alone as our substitute, who lived the life we could not live, who died the death we deserve, who was raised bodily from the grave, evidencing the fact that God had received the payment for sin. Those who've been united to Christ by faith are adopted into God's family and are now sons and daughters of God in union with Christ, the firstborn son. But now that we are in the family of God, our father, through the work, through the ministry of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, and by the spirit of God, it's a triune work, is now committed to making us look like him. That's what it means when it says he is at work in us to do and to will. We are to work out our salvation in the previous passage. He is committed to making us look like a family member as well as preparing us to represent him. In other words, we have family responsibilities. You're adopted into the family. You have family responsibilities. And it's clear from our letter to the Philippians that these believers in Philippi, by their divisiveness, by their pride, by their selfish ambition, by their conceit, they were failing to heed their family responsibilities. And so God, through the pen of our apostle, the apostle Paul, brings correction and restoration. He brings a word to them. It was a word to the Philippians in the first century, and it's a word to the Fishervillians in the 21st century. And the first thing we see here, and again, this is adoption language. When you speak of this child of God, children of God motif, you show your adoption by your language. You show your adoption by your language. Notice with me in verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, Paul is still musing on the theme that we looked at last week, where he tells the believers to work out your salvation, which is our progressive sanctification, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to do and to will according to his good pleasure. And so this is a specific application of what it means to work out our salvation. And remember, we saw that Paul used that word work, where God is at work in us. He used the present tense, which tells us in every circumstance, in every relationship, and in every location, God is at work to sanctify you, to conform you to the image of his son, so that you will look like the family you've been adopted in. That's what he's doing. And so this work of God is comprehensive, isn't it? You, he never takes a sabbatical. He never takes a vacation or a weekend. In every situation, he is at work in your life as a believer. And that comprehensive work prepares us for this comprehensive command. Notice what it says. You should do all things. Do all things. Now, that's a pretty remarkable statement. It's an all-inclusive statement. 
What is he referring to here? It entails all that God has called us to do. Now, in our culture, we live in a celebrity culture, don't we? Where it's the celebrities, it's the people who are well-known and famous who are the really important people. Celebrity, that kind of mentality wasn't even on the radar in the first century. What God is calling us to do is not to make our name great. He's calling us to be great in our home. He's calling us to be great in our marriage. He's calling us to be great in our parenting. He's calling us to be immersed in body life, loving the saints. God doesn't need our works, but our brothers and sisters do. Our neighbors do. And so that's what the all things is referring to here. There's nothing in our lives that's not captured by that phrase. Nothing. Do all things, he says. But having commanded us to do all things, it's interesting and quite sobering that of all the things Paul could mention immediately after that, he goes after the tongue. Isn't that interesting? He goes after our language, the words we speak. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, grumbling may seem like a small sin. When I grumble, I often don't think twice about it. And when I hear you grumble, I often don't think twice about it. And so grumbling seems like a small sin to me, just by my own experience. But Paul would propose that grumbling is an O-ring failure of the heart. When we grumble, and what we grumble about... That's just a mere stone throw from what we desire and love too much. Whatever we grumble about, you can mark it down. It's just a small stone's throw from something we love and desire too much that has taken on ruling status, godlike Messiah status in our hearts. So if we desire comfort, if we love comfort, and we're not comfortable in a set of circumstances, what do we do? We grumble. If we love and desire human approval or acclaim, and we don't get human approval or acclaim, what do we do? We grumble. If we desire things to be neat and tidy and... We don't get neat and tidy. What do we do? We grumble. If we desire and love control and authority. And we don't get control. We lose control. We lose authority. What do we do? We grumble. Grumbling is always... The direct result of a heart that's not satisfied with God. And with idols that have not delivered for you. The idols have not come through. And so you grumble. 
Like Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, out of the overflow, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's picturing this, the heart as, a, as like a spring or a well. And it overflows with something. Our hearts always overflow with something. Whatever our hearts are set on, whatever our hearts love and esteem more than anything else is, is what it overflows with. And there, if you want to know what a person's heart is set upon, just listen to their words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, uh, tongue problems are always heart problems. And that's not denied that we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, people will hurt you. You will, you will face circumstances that will be very painful. And there is a legitimate groaning in Scripture. Romans 8, verse 23. We groan as we eagerly await our adoption. The fullness of our adoption. Resurrection. But more often than not, grumbling reveals a heart with identity amnesia. Messiah. Amnesia. And when we have Messiah and identity amnesia, we will go on a search to find its replacement. And when that replacement does not come through, and it never does, we grumble. Now, grumbling, both in the Greek and in the English, is an onomatopoeia. Maybe you remember this from grade school. What an onomatopoeia is something that sounds like what it's representing, like chirp. Birds sound like they chirp when they sing. And so uh, that is chirping. Or a cat that meows. That's what it sounds like. Well, the Greek word was goguzma. Imagine a group of people below their, just below their breath going, goguzma, 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 goguzma. That's grumbling. Even our English word grumbling. Sounds like what it is. Grumbling, 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 grumbling. That's what it must sound like to God. Grumbling says that I deserve better. It signals that I have placed myself on the throne in the center of my universe. And made life all about me. It's more serious than it appears, isn't it? And its companion term here, disputing, can be translated questioning, arguing. Do you know people who just question everything and argue about everything? Sometimes that's me. The disputer says, I know better in every situation. If I were in control, I would do X, Y, and Z differently. Now, who's he dealing with? He's dealing with these Philippians, and he's, he's getting at the heart of their problem. There's division. And he recognizes that unity isn't apologetic for the gospel, and division is bearing false witness against an accomplishment of the cross, which is unity, reconciliation. And grumblers and disputers want lives without obstacles. 
They want church members who are as godly as they are. Who are as perfected and sanctified as they are. They want children who are self-parented. And they want spouses who are as wonderful as they are. But ultimately, grumblers and disputers are seeking to find life in the creation rather than the creator. It it, it reflects the lie that we have bought into this notion that people and prestige and position and possessions and earthly pleasure is the source of life. This way we deify, we magnify the creation and we forget our creator. That's why Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Because he knows by personal example how easy it is to forget. In fact, that's why God, in his wisdom and his mercy, allows pieces of the creation to die in your hands. Maybe it's a dream. You had a particular dream for a particular career, a particular athletic pursuit, financial security. You dreamed of being healthy in retirement. And so God, graciously and wisely, though it's very painful at the time, graciously, he allows pieces of the creation to die in our hands so that we can increasingly be freed from asking earth to give us what only God can give us. Asking something in the created order, whether it's a person or a thing, to give us what it cannot give us. Because our hearts are hardwired for God. Now the word grumbling here is only used five times in the New Testament. It's only used once in the Apostle Paul. We saw it in 1 Peter when we went through 1 Peter. But it's often used in the Septuagint. Which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you see it time and time again in the Exodus narrative. For those of you that have been with us on Sunday night, we've been through that Exodus narrative. And we saw God miraculously, graciously, and mercifully deliver these undeserving Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And once they were delivered, they, they crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground. And they saw God move time and time again. But by the time you get to Exodus 15... The scripture says they're grumbling. Exodus 16, they're grumbling. Exodus 16, 7 and 8 says, Moses says, ultimately your grumbling's not at me. It's at the Lord. You're grumbling and your grumbling is about the Lord. Exodus 17, they continue to grumble. And they never stopped. Counselors call this displacement. You take out your frustrations either on your leaders in that case or on those that are closest to you. But ultimately, they're not the problem. You are. And God has used a set of circumstances or relationship to expose the problem. And the problem 
was that they and every grumbler, when they grumble, puts God on trial. Ed Clowney, in a sermon that he did called God on Trial, he speaks about a play about a group of people who put God to the test. They, they wanted to know who was behind the Holocaust. And the play was performed in Berlin, Germany, just after World War II. So that gives you an idea of what the Germans were struggling with after the war. And here's what he said. The, the, the name of the play was The Sign of Jonah. The play draws both the cast and the audience into the answer. No one is really to blame. A stormtrooper merely followed orders. An industrialist merely kept up production. A citizen simply did not become involved. And yet, in defending their own innocence, each of the accused becomes an accuser. All are guilty. Some are guilty by words, others by silence. Some by what they did, others by what they did not do. And suddenly, the accused accusers all take up another cry. We are to blame, yes, but we're not the most to blame. The real blame belongs much higher. God is to blame. God must go on trial. And I appreciate that honesty. Because when we grumble, we're ultimately putting God on trial for our circumstances, for our relationships and our location. And Paul, by picking up this grumbling and disputing theme, you see it in Moses' writings... He is reminding the Philippians that they are the people of the new exodus. A greater exodus. Not just an exodus from political bondage. An exodus from spiritual Egypt. Death and sin and judgment. And they've been delivered not by a a literal lamb. They've been delivered by the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, who is our Lamb by his blood and by that redemption. And he's reminding, he's, he's reminding them that by way of illusion, that they are now the new people of God. And he's reminding them of what happened to Israel because of their unrepentant grumbling. He'll warn them again in 1 Corinthians 10. He'll he'll warn the Corinthian church there. He'll he'll speak in Romans 15 about this as well. And I think we see this even more clearly in verse 15 when Paul addresses why they need to stop grumbling. We saw in verse 14 that you you show your adoption by your language. He says as well, you show up by your life. Notice in the first part of verse 15, he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. That, don't, know, don't miss that word. That is a condition that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. They were not called to go to a convent. A monastery. 
They were called to live out, notice, in the midst of the crooked and twisted generation. Note again, children of God. The grace of Christian ethics is that it calls us not to something that we aren't, but something that we already are in Jesus Christ. We are children of God in Christ. For those of us who've trusted in Christ, we are now in union with Christ, the firstborn son. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted heirs. We have all the rights and the privileges of sonship because of Christ. Indeed, it's the glory of Scripture, and I love this, to tell us who we are and then to tell us the the characteristics of who we are. This is who you are, and these are the characteristics of who you are. And Paul implies, and this is a hard implication here, that grumbling does not characterize a child of God. Let me say that again. I'm saying it primarily so I can hear it. Grumbling does not characterize a child of God. And as a result, when one grumbles, one is not blameless. He is blameworthy. One is not innocent. He's guilty. One is not unblemished, but blemished. And so the dilemma for those of us who do not take grumbling seriously, and let me be a part of that number. Maybe you are too. The dilemma for those of us who do not take grumbling seriously, blamelessness and innocence are the marks of the child of God. It's not just for the superior Christian. It's not just for the special forces Christian. That's the marks of the child of God. Now let's break this down. Blameless. What does he mean here? Does not mean sinless. There's only one who's ever been sinless. There was only one in the history of the world that did not have to be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. It's Jesus Christ. But it does mean that one does not have an unrepentant moral defect that eclipses the glory of the gospel in one's life. It's, It's one who actively is working out her salvation, his salvation, with fear and trembling. The word innocent here, it was a term that was used for for pure wine that had not been diluted by water. It it, it literally is unadulterated. It's a life not polluted by high-handed sins. What's a high-handed sin? It's a sin I'm going to commit I know it's a sin, but I'm under grace. So I'm going to commit it and then ask for forgiveness later. God help us. And in this particular set of circumstances, the sin is gossip. I'm going to gossip anyway. I am a child of God. I am forgiven. And Paul would say, you're not innocent. Without blemish. 
Uh, that term can be translated above reproach. It's, it's someone who is blameless. Again, it's not sinlessness, but it's one who lives in light of the gospel by the obedience of faith. It's a person who keeps a short account with God and a person who keeps a short account with those he or she has sinned against. And note, all of this is God's strategy. Notice what he says. All of this takes place in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Why is that? Why doesn't God just save us and put us over here in an enclave somewhere? Because our working out our salvation is his mission to the world. That's how sinners come to saving faith. They see this transformed community who's different than they are. And it opens them up to hear the only message that can save a sinner. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this language again ironically comes from Moses. It's up on the board, but in Deuteronomy 32, in Moses' song, speaking of Israel, he says, They have dealt corruptly with him, that is the Lord. They are no longer his children. My goodness. Because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted Generation. Paul trusts that unlike Israel, who became like the culture, the true children of God here, the church, working out their salvation, will permeate the culture as light. And that brings us to the final point. You show your adoption by your language. You show it by your life. Finally, related to those aforementioned, you show it by your light. Notice in the last part of verse 15. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul says that Christ's church is to do as the children of God what Israel did not do. And of course... This is only possible because Jesus Christ, the true servant of Israel, the true servant, the suffering servant, Isaiah 49, is the true light. This is possible for us only because of our union in Christ, who is the light of the world. We're not the source of the light. He is. We're like the moon. The moon does not produce light. The moon reflects the light of the sun. And by virtue of our union in Christ... We reflect the light of Christ. Indeed, light, I think, is a great example of something that necessarily does what it's supposed to do because of what it is. It can't help but be light. Paul is reminding them of this. And that means... That the most important thing in the world is not what's happening in D.C. 
It's not what's happening at the White House or at the Capitol. It's not what's happening in the City Hall or even at the Southern Baptist Convention. It's God's children in the local church working out their salvation and taking up their calling as light. F.B. Meyer said something in his commentary that I found quite sobering. Every one of us, every day, resembles Jeroboam who made other men sin or we are lifting other men into the light and peace and joy of God. No man, no woman, liveth to himself or herself. No man or woman dieth to himself or herself. What a solemn responsibility. And here's the point. Paul is telling us that grumbling and disputing eclipses our light. That's what it does. The light is Christ, but it's like a cloud on a sunny day. It's like a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse. It eclipses the light. It is an O-ring malfunction of the heart. So how do we change? Well, we wait till December 31st and we make our New Year's resolutions, right? I will not grumble. Let me just tell you something. That will not ever be effective. Grumblers grumble. That's like telling our cat, and he does this every night, he starts meowing. And for me to tell that cat to stop meowing is futile. I can't just tell you stop grumbling. Grumblers grumble. So how do we actually change? Remember that grumbling is an issue of the heart. So our hearts have to be reoriented away from ourselves and our idols in order to truly stop grumbling. Well, Paul Tripp is very helpful here. He has given, and I have benefited greatly from this, seven texts, and I'm going to go through these in 30 seconds. So you can look the text up later. Seven texts. That will help you reorient your heart. First of all, the only thing we deserve is death. Psalm 103, verse 10. So whatever you're not, that's not, you're not receiving and it's producing this grumbling heart. The only thing we deserve is death. Secondly, but we've been given life instead. Titus 3, 5. Third. And we've been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Everything I need for life and godliness I've been given in Christ. And God will provide for me. Fourth, so we don't need to be anxious. Matthew 6 verses 25 to 32. Fifth, God has been around from the beginning. Genesis 1 1. He knows what he's doing. Sixth, he has designed your entire life story. Acts 17, verse 26. 
He has designed it. The place, the people, the circumstances. Seventh, and his plans are for his glory and your good. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know that's a text promised to Israel, but there's implications for the people of God. But I would submit to you, as important as those seven thoughts, truths, and texts are, most importantly, for our hearts to be reoriented away from ourselves and away from our idols, we have to behold God as more glorious and lovely and lovely and beautiful than any part of the creation that we desire and love too much. Remember, Paul says, it is the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. For the purposes of our text, let me add this. And I don't think Paul would mind. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation from grumbling. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation from grumbling. And so what do we do? First of all, we begin with heart confession. Anytime and every time you grumble, Lord, I have a grumbling-based life. Here I go again. I'm grumbling. I confess that to you. And then I muse on the gospel hope. And here's one of those great hopes. Isaiah 53, 7. Speaking of the one who would come. The suffering servant. Here's what it says. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Just like sometimes you feel. But infinitely more. Yet he opened not his mouth. Isn't that powerful? Like a lamb... That is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep. Before his shears is silent. So he opened up not his mouth. And what this text teaches us. Is two things that are crucial to our salvation. And we'll close here. In order for us to be saved. We need our Messiah's. Active obedience. And his passive obedience. Now what do I mean by active obedience and passive obedience? His active obedience was his obedience to God and the covenant as our representative. We need a positive righteousness. We need a perfect righteousness if we're going to stand before an infinitely righteous God. And Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And so where we grumble, he remains silent. And the reason he remained silent was not because of a New Year's resolution. He did not find his life in the creation. He found his life in his father. He loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength in his neighbor as himself. So Jesus never grumbled. So that we who grumble every day might be covered by his righteousness. That is his active obedience. And then there's the passive obedience. I hate that term passive, but it actually comes from the word passion or suffering. It sounds like Jesus was a victim on the cross, and we know that he wasn't. John 10 says, no one, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. 
I lay it down by my own accord. So when we think passive obedience, don't think of the fact that Jesus was passively put up on a cross. He came to die. It speaks to his suffering, taking judgment that we deserve. And so notice it says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. Why? Because we deserve death. And we deserve death because we are incessant grumblers. And we are grumblers because we are idolaters to the core. And he took the judgment for our idolatry. He took the judgment for our grumbling. And when I muse on that gospel truth, the glorious Savior, the glorious substitute, It progressively transforms a heart that is so prone to grumble. That's the good news for every believer here. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, it can be good news for you. Do you realize that when Christ died on the cross for sinners, he took every possible sin that could ever be committed by a sinner? course, it does not benefit you unless you trust him. You've got to run to him. You've got to trust him. You have to embrace him. And the Bible says no matter what you've ever done in your past, no matter what you've done, your sins will be forgiven. That's the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you rebuking us. Thank you for teaching us and correcting us and training us in righteousness. Sometimes it's painful. Oftentimes it's painful. Because Lord, there's perhaps no one here that has not been indicted by that text in some way or fashion. But we're also grateful that our salvation is not grounded by our capacity not to grumble. Or we'd all be doomed. It's grounded by the one. Who never grumbled. And then took the sin of grumbling on his back on the cross. Thank you Lord for our salvation in Christ. May that salvation. Take effect. In our hearts. May we progressively increasingly deny. Our real tendencies towards grumbling. As we increasingly learn what it means to find our life, our identity, our treasure in our creator and redeemer. Rather than in the created order. And Father, if there's any here today that's never trusted in Christ. Lord, I would love to talk to them. I would love to pray with them. I pray that they would see fit to come forward during this song. So that I could talk to them about how to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ, our Savior. Amen. As we stand.